I said earlier that when John gives us command to not love the world, that instantly there's imagery, there's associations, there's things that pop into your head, and some of those are probably right. In fact, a lot of them are probably right, but I, I don't think oftentimes that we're going deep enough. I think we often have incorrect assumptions about what the world is. You know, when we hear the world, what we do is this. We read things through a whole bunch of filters, and then we end up calling the world whatever it is we don't agree with. The world in the Bible is Satan's system for opposing the very work of Jesus on earth. Right? It's the very opposite of what is godly, what is holy, and what is righteous. And it's not the obvious things. It's not the obvious things. It's the things hiding behind the obvious things. The things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. Good morning. It's great to be here. Um, we are in week four of this summer-long series going through the book of 1 John uh, called Love and Light. We've talked some about uh, the context of, of this letter-slash-sermon that John wrote, um, given the history of it, who he was writing to, and Obviously, we've entitled it Love and Light because if you've read it, which I hopefully you have at least once so far this summer, you'll see that love and light are two words and themes that are repeated uh, through all of the chapters. Uh, you've also maybe noticed a couple other things. One is that, uh, as we mentioned earlier when we were introducing the series weeks ago, there are a lot of what we would term famous verses uh, in this. A lot of times you're like, wow. I wonder where that verse is at, and if you read through 1 John, you probably come across a whole bunch that now you know. They're all situated in this really uh, short uh, little letter-slash-sermon. The other thing you maybe noticed, uh, and something that certainly jumps out at me as I've read it and studied it uh, in the past, and again, here as we prepared for this series, is uh, there's some strong statements. There are some seriously strong statements. Uh, John was given the nickname, him and his brother James, were given the nickname uh, by Jesus of the Sons of Thunder. And this had to do with uh, the nature of their personality, uh, their brashness, their boldness. Their, you know, he gave it to them uh, after they asked him if it was okay to call fire down on a city to destroy it. And he's like, well, let's not do that. But, you know, they were getting after it. And so this is later in John's life. And uh, he certainly has softened, I would think, and he certainly matured, but he hasn't lost, I don't think, a lot of that boldness, a lot of that personality. And it, he's writing to a church, uh, into a group of churches that are facing a lot of um, heresies, a lot of uh, not good stuff is going on. And so, uh, true to his nature, he doesn't pull punches, he doesn't back off, he doesn't, uh, you know, back down in any way, shape, or form in some, in some situations, he actually doubles down or ups the ante, and he feels like it's necessary because how else maybe is he going to get through? And so you're going to see here a little bit today, as you did last week in our passage, uh, that level of directness, uh, that level of intensity. Let me read you the scripture first, and then we're going to actually um, go from there. So this is 1 John 2, 12 through 17. And he says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Then he goes into another poetic refrain. I write to you dear children 
because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil ones. All very encouraging stuff. And then he goes into a little bit of a different direction. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So a little over four years ago, uh, I'd gone on a run. Uh, it was a rather long run, and although I normally didn't t- don't take headphones with me in the past when I used to go on long runs, I chose to do so this day. And at the end of the run, when I took my headphones out, I noticed my right ear just felt a little bit like funky, a little bit off. And I figured at first that it was just that I wasn't used to having the headphones in there for that long, and it just become irritated a little bit, and so I thought nothing of it. Uh, but then the next day, it still felt almost kind of like, um, like a little bit plugged up. Uh, you know, I didn't, definitely didn't have 100% hearing. It was a little irritated, and, you know, so I'm like, well, again, maybe it's just this thing. Who knows what? So the next day, uh, it's worse, and I'm starting to have uh, more pain now, and it's starting to get to the point where it's, like, affecting, like, my jaw, you know, in the hair, and kind of like a headache over here. And, like, when I would lay down at night, if I had my left ear on my pillow, I couldn't hear anything like at all. And so after that, I did, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do, which is waited, you know, longer to go get it checked out. uh, Because I just figured it'd go away. That usually works, right? And so it's like, oh, I hope it goes away. And so uh, by the next day, though, I I couldn't wait any longer. I was starting to get in some, uh, it was painful. And so I go to uh, the doctor who at the time was my, uh, you know, primary care physician, and I come in, and I'm like, man, I'm having all this ear pain. doesn't feel real good. And so he takes a look at it, and he says, I thought it was an ear infection but because of what I had read, you know. Um, but then I'm like, I've never had an ear infection. Like, what do adults get ear infections? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, why would I have an ear infection? And so I ask him, like, you know, do I have an ear infection? And he takes a look, and he is like, no, it's this thing where, like, your ear somehow, like, you know, got all, like, clogged. And what you need to do is, like, go home and, like, yawn real big and like try to do this and do these stretches and it'll pop and then your ear will like clear. I'm like, all right, sounds good. So I go home and I try to do that, but it's almost too painful to even do that. Like I can barely even like open my jaw wide enough just because of the pain in my ear that's radiated down now. And I try it and I give it like 24 hours. And by the end of 24 hours, like, I mean, it, it, it was really, really bad, like really bad, like horrible. And I, uh, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life. I've had multiple surgeries, multiple injuries, all kinds of different stuff. And I would say this is maybe the most pain I've ever been in. Uh, unbelievable. And so I'm like, clearly, like my doctor, I don't, don't think he knew what he was talking about. So I call the ENT specialist. Thankfully, they got me in right away. I go in. Uh, you know, the physician's assistant comes in and like says, what's wrong? And I'm like, I think my ear's about to fall off. Like, I don't, I don't know, but I can barely even stand here. Um, I'm just in so much pain. He goes, let me get the doctor to come in. The doctor comes in and he, and he's like, what's going on? And I repeat it to him and he, and he looks at my ear and he goes, I cannot believe that your doctor told you you did not have an ear infection. 
He's like, this is like, this is a terrible ear infection. He's like, in fact, it's so swollen and red, I can't even like see in there. He's like, this is, this is bad, bad. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, great, what do we do about it? And so he's like, don't worry, we can get it taken care of. And he gives me the stuff. And I said, look, I'm like, I, I get that I have an ear infection. I said, like, is it just, I, mean, I feel like I'm not, like, I'm not saying I'm tough, but I feel like I have a decent, like, pain threshold. I'm like, but honestly, like, I, I kind of wanted just to, like, die, like, cry, you know, or something. And he's like, no, he's like, literally, he's like, it's one of the, one of the worst pains an adult can have is bad ear infections. And he's like, you know, there was this the other day, he says there was this big six foot five, 260 pound muscular Marine who came in with an ear infection and he was crying. And I'm like, oh, that makes me feel better. Okay. Because I wasn't crying, so apparently I'm tougher than that guy. So, um, so he gives me the, the stuff, and, you know, I had relief within a couple days and whatever. So there's that. First truth for this morning. First truth for this morning. Receiving uh, an accurate diagnosis is incredibly important. In some cases, can be the difference between life and death. Receiving an accurate diagnosis is incredibly important. In some cases, it can be the difference between life and death. Goes without saying, pretty obvious statement, but what, what's important <laughs> to do and what's important not to do is <clears throat> we don't want to treat illnesses that don't exist, right? Has anybody ever had that happen? I mean, I, I'm telling you, I just did where you went to, and you had a, a misdiagnosis and they gave you a medication or a form of treatment or something and it didn't work. Not only did it not work, it actually did more harm than good. Like it actually exacerbated the symptoms or made the condition worse. If you have any experience with that, it's terrible and it's terribly frustrating, right? So we don't wanna treat illnesses that don't exist while at the same time then neglecting the others that actually do exist. Because it's one thing to go and receive a misdiagnosis and then begin to treat something you don't actually have, and that can create all kinds of problems, not just because you're taking the wrong medication or doing the wrong things, but also because while you're doing that, the illness you actually do have or the symptoms or the treat, whatever it is, those are being completely and totally neglected. So those are being allowed to worsen. And as you know, if they are allowed to worsen long enough, while you're taking treatment for something you don't actually have, there can be very severe, dire, deadly consequences. They're still one of the leading causes of death every year in the United States is misdiagnosis, mistreatment, right? An incorrect diagnosis, someone ends up doing something, has something done to them by a doctor or physician, and I'm not slamming that at all. I have friends that are doctors, but it just happens, okay? That stuff happens. So what, happen, what is very real in the natural, in the physical world, is also very true when it comes to the spiritual, to our spiritual lives. We're going to talk more about this as we go. Might be asking, like, how is that applicable specifically to this morning? Because when we hear these verses read, the verses I read earlier, and we come across this command that John gives. It's one command in the midst of this other, these other verses. He gives us a direct command. We come across this command not to love the world. We tend to assume that we know what John is referring to. Right? When we hear, Don't, do not love the world, most of you, if you've been in church for any length of time, you instantly have an image in your head or a set of ideas 
or something that you would define as the world. So when he says, do not love the world, you automatically assign some sort of, right, something to that. I think that that's okay in some situations. I think there are actually some pretty obvious things that we can identify as being associated with the world and the ways of the world, right? For example, you shouldn't look at certain things, right, on, online. Probably shouldn't do that, right? Uh, you shouldn't lie, right? You shouldn't cheat. You shouldn't, like, eat your coworker's lunch out of the break room fridge, right? Like, you shouldn't do steal. You shouldn't do those types of things. We, we think about that stuff when we're thinking about the world. And again, those things are true, and, and they're obvious. And because of that, I, I feel like, um, I feel like one, it would be a waste of our time to just go over those things again and like rehash those and, and have me do like, you know, the whole like this kind of thing or what that pastor was doing in the video. Or I could just be like, look, if you're doing those things, just stop it, all right? Okay, that's, that's what you need to hear. Don't do them. Stop being bad. All right, amen. So like, I don't wanna spend time doing that because not only though is it because you've heard it before, and because it seems to be overly obvious, but I also don't think that it's actually what he's talking about or it's actually the issue. At best, it's, right, like the weed that's grown up and you're, but it's not the root. It's not the underlying issue, right? At best, if we address those things, what we're really doing is we're maybe treating some symptoms, but we're not accurately diagnosing the illness or what the cause of the symptoms is. So in all, in all seriousness with all this stuff, here's the truth I want to hammer home today, and I'm literally going to say it like five times. It'll be on the screen like five different times. So here's what it is for today. The things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. The things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. A lot of the ways that I think about this stuff, how I've kind of, in my own personal Christian walk, come to believe this over the last 25 years, a lot of it's informed and was shaped by a book I read within the first year or two of coming to Jesus. It's a book I've mentioned here years ago, but I want to mention it now because at the end of this message, you, there's no way this is going to be as comprehensive as I would like it to be today. No matter how much we talk, I'll still feel like it's unfinished. And so this book would help you, I think, get even a deeper sense of what I'm talking about. This guy's a little smarter than me, just a little. Uh, his name's C.S. Lewis, and uh, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I would highly encourage you uh, to do so. I don't always plug books but it's something that in the context of this message, I think would help you understand where I'm coming from, where I think uh, John's talking about, and obviously uh, just really help um, like shore up some of these ideas. The book, just as a kind of like a whatever, a little bit of information for you, is um, written, uh, it's obviously fictional, but it's written from an uncle demon who was uh, writing to his nephew demon and he's training him how to basically subvert Christians and how to wreck Christians' lives. And he's giving him advice on how to do this. And the things that he talks about in there, it's subtleties. 
It's not the obvious stuff. When I first read the book, multiple times I had to close it, put it down, and just step away because I could just feel the rea- how the truth coming from it, the reality, the impact of that. So the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, go ahead and pick that up when you have the chance. So the things that aren't the most obvious are by far the most dangerous. Let me give you another statement that I want to kind of frame things up with a little bit. And it's this, pastors, like myself, Pastor Jordan, are tasked with shepherding a flock. That would be you guys. And in order to do so effectively, they must be able to accurately diagnose the dangers of our culture, as well as recognize the symptoms of cultural infiltration within the church. It's kind of a mouthful, huh? Pastors are tasked with shepherding a flock. If we're going to do that effectively, we have to be able to actually identify appropriately, correctly the dangers and then recognize when those dangers, when those cultural things have actually worked their way into the church. Right? Think about this in terms of the classic biblical metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. Right? The shepherd tends to his flock, whatever size that it is, and he has to know the lay of the land. He has to know areas where he can lead his sheep safely in areas that would not be worth taking a risk because of high dangers. He has to know times of the day when the sheep are more susceptible to attacks based on their predators. He has to know all kinds of things, right? It's not just knowing his sheep. That's important too. It's knowing the things that could kill the sheep, that could cause the sheep to stumble, that could cause the sheep to die, all these different things. He has to be aware of that stuff. And to be a little silly, but also I think you'll understand here, he also has to know his sheep really well and to know like his shepherding patterns and how he does things. So he notices something is out of whack and it's disturbing the rest of the flock. So it's like if he's like looking at his sheep and he normally has 100 and he's counting and kind of he sees like, did I count wrong? Like, I think there's like 101, right? And then he kind of like looks closer and he sees like these legs that don't look like a sheep's legs, but then there's like, you know, sheep wool on top and he looks a little closer and he realizes it's like a wolf's legs, right? And the wolf is like, got some sheep's like wool on and stuff. He has to be able to be like, there's a wolf. Like, I need to get that out of here. You have to be aware of the conditions on the outside, the dangers, and also if they've worked their way in. Right? It's important. I don't think that you can effectively lead a church in this day and age, or any day and age for that matter, unless you're able to identify those. I do not have this down pat. Jordan does not have this down pat. But there's a high level of awareness that this is necessary to be able to do because if we're sitting here all day telling you this is the illness that you have, but it's really not the illness you have, we're doing you a massive disservice, Right? a massive disservice because we're treating something you don't have and we're neglecting something that you do. And when we do that, all that's going to happen is things are going to get worse and worse. That's not what we want. The things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. The things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. Here's something to think about. You ever read through the Bible, whatever, Genesis through Revelation, any point, any story, whatever it is, could be a story of Joseph or story of David or Moses or whoever, Solomon or the New Testament could be Jesus, the disciples, Paul, anybody. You ever read through there and you kind of identify with a 
like a certain, you know, character in the story. I mean, obviously these were real people. But do you ever feel like, man, I can really relate to Peter? Because, like, I love Jesus, but I'm always putting my foot in my mouth, you know? Or, like, I can really relate to Thomas because, man, even though I've seen God move in so many ways, I still, you know, I still have a hard time believing the next time. Or, you know, you do that kind of stuff. Or maybe it's the other where you're like, man, I really relate, you know, to, to David because it says that he was, like, ruddy and handsome. Like, I can really relate to that, you know, or whatever. So, and that's fine. There, I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago. I can't even remember, but... Uh, you know, this show that my wife and son and I are hugely into right now, The Chosen. Some of you guys I know have been watching it. It's based on the life of Jesus. And, you know, it's, what's amazing about it is you get a whole lot of, and I know that it's theoretical, uh, it's speculative, but you get a real sense of some of these biblical figures in a way that maybe you otherwise wouldn't. And they really, you get a sense of their personalities. And there have been, I don't even know how many countless uh, comments that have been sent to the chosen. We've talked about it as a family. But sometimes you're like, man, I can really identify with that particular character. Like, man, I can totally identify with fill in the blank. Okay? And that, I think, it makes sense. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, kind of a rhetorical thing, but how many of you have ever, you know, been reading through the scriptures and you've been like, <clears throat> man, I really identify with those Pharisees. Like, I really, like, oh my gosh, like, if there's any character in the Bible that's me, it's definitely the Pharisees, right? My guess is not many of us, maybe none of us, have ever done that. You read through and you're like, those Pharisees are terrible guys. Like, I can't believe they do this. I never would have done this. And they're so, how could they miss it? And all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so, uh, here's a true statement. Another one for this morning. One way to know for sure that you have Pharisaical tendencies is if you never see yourself as a Pharisee when reading through the New Testament. Okay? The things that aren't the most obvious are by far the most dangerous. Right? One way <laughs> to know that you have those Pharisaical tendencies is if you always put yourself above them. If you always are like, I would never do that, or you just never identify with them, right? Another one that's maybe, we can laugh about that one, but if I ask you, again, don't raise your hands, but you know, by a show of hands, <clears throat> how many of you would admit, would say, you know what, I'm rich. Like, yeah, I'm rich. Like, I am filthy, stinking rich right? Most of us, probably none of us, even if everybody's eyes were closed and heads were down and whatever, most of us would not raise our hands. We would not say that we're rich. But here's the reality. Like, someone's got to be rich, okay? But no one ever thinks it's them because there's always somebody else that they think is rich, right? There's always somebody else that has more money, so then we don't define ourselves as rich, because we're like, I'm not rich, but like that guy, he's rich, and then that guy's like, well, I'm not rich. This guy, you know, this whatever, they're rich, and we do that, and so then no one ever defines themselves as rich, so then again, biblically, we read through the New Testament, and we see all these massive, massive warnings <clears throat> about wealth, and about being rich, and about what's required of the rich and the difficulties of the rich entering the kingdom of heaven and how not to trust in money and 
all these different things. I mean, these massive warnings. And we're in significant danger if we never read ourselves as rich. And I'm not saying you are. I'm saying you're in significant danger if we never read ourselves that way. Someone's got to be rich because there's a lot of warnings to the rich. So who is it? If you've always assumed it's not you, it's probably worth considering. Right? It's something that my wife and I talk about. Like, would people look at us and go like, are they rich? Probably not. Does that mean that we're not? No. Because what standard are they judging by? Right? We're not off the hook just because we have a little less than, you know, some other people we know. And I'm not trying to hammer on this. I'm just giving you context with the Pharisees and with wealth. Again, the things that aren't obvious are by far the most dangerous. There's a word that I use a fair amount when it comes to these types of things that I'm talking about, the things that aren't as obvious, and it's uh, the word insidious. And insidious, this is the definition, operating or proceeding in an inconspicuous or seemingly harmless way, but actually with grave effect. Operating or proceeding in an inconspicuous, subtle, seemingly benign, seemingly gentle, seemingly no big deal way, but actually leading to death. I said earlier that when John gives us command to not love the world, that instantly there's imagery, there's associations, there's things that pop into your head, and some of those are probably right. In fact, a lot of them are probably right, but I, I don't think oftentimes that we're going deep enough. I think we often have incorrect assumptions about what the world is. Most of the time, and I say this about myself because this has been something that's been on, on me and my heart for a while now, but is, you know, when we hear the world, what we do is this. We read things through a whole bunch of filters, and then we end up calling the world whatever it is we don't agree with about the world, right? So the world not loving the world. The world is all those people who voted Democrat, right? The world is all those people who voted Republican. Like, they're of the world, right? Whatever we don't agree with, we, de get, we define it on our terms. Whatever we don't struggle with, whatever we're not tempted by, whatever things we think, like, we're above, and that's not a, a thing for us, we label that as the world, right? The church for the past hundred years has always had its pet sins, right? That the church has been happy, it seems, to take society to task for, right? And this started back in the 30s, and it was, back then it was like smoking and dancing and some of those things, going to movies. Those were the cultural sins that the church that on Sunday morning could get up in almost any pulpit across the United States and hear pastors blast those people who were smoking and going to movies and who were, who were drinking Right, who were dancing, and they would just spend all these time lambasting right, that stuff. And then it shifted. And then the church was happy right, to start to bash, and this is an absolutely terrible thing, and, I, and I, it is terrible, but the church was happy to start bashing abortion. And you could go to any pulpit in any church almost at any given Sunday across the United States, and you'd hear some sermon about how horrible that was. And it is absolutely terrible. I'm not, I'm not saying that. It's absolutely awful. But they were taking the culture to task 
on abortion. And now, I think it goes without saying <laughs> what the, the church's pet sin is right now, right? And there, you can go to any church across the United States on any given Sunday, and you may hear something about it, right? And they're happy to take them to task about that and to hyper-focus on that. It's easy <laughs> for them to do that because they're not self-reflective. Pastors have never taken, generally speaking, the culture to task for all the sins the Bible is very concerned with. But Jesus addresses directly and head on to the church, the dangers of the church. You won't hear, a, I better not say that. You, <laughs> it's good I stopped. No, 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 no. But it, the, what, I, what, I'd, what I'd like to think, and I, this is, uh, hear me in this, but what I'd like to think is when I'm, or Jordan is up here and we're talking to you about this stuff and like we're sharing like these concerns, that these, are, these aren't things that are like, oh, I don't struggle with that, so it's easy for me to blast it. Like it's easy for me to show these people no grace, no concern, whatever, like, because I don't struggle with that, so I can't relate, and I'll just ignore all the things I do struggle with or that I do have trouble with, or I'll, I'll just forget about actually any kind of, like, level-headed self-analysis or self-critique or self-reflection. Like, I'm going to ignore all that. So, you know, if I live, if my church is, you know, is massive and building and has all this stuff, I'm never, of course, going to talk about maybe the dangers of greed. I'm not saying that that is the church that has that stuff is greedy. I'm just saying Maybe we're not going to talk about that. I don't know, but I hope what you hear of here is that we're talking about stuff that we're not above, right? We're not reading through this. I'm not reading through this message preparing this week and going like, oh, yeah, man, Dan, he is the worst. Like, I'm just going to preach directly to him. Like, oh, man, so-and-so, they're just doing this stupid stuff. I can't believe they're acting this way. They really need to hear this. What I'm doing, what I know Jordan is doing too, is like, when we're preparing this, we're like, God, what is it in me that I can, what, what is it here that you want to show me about me that's probably applicable to the rest of, of the congregation? What are those things? Don't just, don't just give me the obvious things, but show me the deeper stuff. We often, we often have incorrect assumptions about what the world is, and we read things through a whole bunch of filters, end up naming the world as anything we don't agree with. It's not what John's talking about at all. It's not, that stuff is basically not dangerous. The stuff that is dangerous is the stuff that's subtle, that's less obvious, that we want to shy away from, filters we don't even know we have. The world, as we kind of keep moving forward, the world named here, and John's letter is our enemy, as our enemy is an invisible spiritual system that is directly opposed to God. It's an organized system comprised of a set of ideas and people and activities and purposes that have set themselves up and have been set up by our enemy in order to subvert the way of Jesus. That's another huge statement that I do not have time fully to unpack today. It's literally a holder series on spiritual warfare and the principalities and the powers, but I wanted to at least give you a cursory definition so that you had something to, to think about. The world in the Bible 
is Satan's system for opposing the very work of Jesus on earth. Right? It's the very opposite of what is godly, what is holy, and what is righteous. And it's not the obvious things. It's not the obvious things. It's the things hiding behind the obvious things, holding their strings, acting as a marionette, so to speak. It's not the obvious things. Are you hearing me? It's not the obvious things. It's the things hiding behind the obvious things. To use a way worn out, old, tired youth pastor analogy, it's the Matrix. That old movie, remember that one? It's the matrix. It's the wool that's been pulled over your eyes to blind you. It's when you think that everything is normal and this is the real world and this is how things are, but the reality is there's all these things going on behind the scenes that you're comfortably unaware of. If we're not to love those things, then, and John tells us, we need to know probably what they are. Again, like I said last week with living like Jesus, probably should know how Jesus lived. If we're not to love the world, you should probably know what the world is and how it works and how it looks. Paul says we're not unaware of how the enemy works. We are familiar, he says, with the enemy schemes. We have knowledge of them. Paul says I'm able to shepherd my flock because I know where the enemy is at, how he's going to work. We want to be the same way. If we're not to love those things, we need to know what they are there are many things we've probably taken for granted because to use, to go way back where I was talking about the Pharisees and then the wealthy, most of us read this. I doubt anybody in here, and that's okay because it's me too. I doubt anybody in here this morning when I read the text and it says, do not love the world or anything in the world, you automatically thought to yourself, oh no, I love the world. I totally love the world. And now I'm not supposed to, oh my gosh, it's just not likely that that was how it went. You heard it, but you didn't think necessarily that the things of the world are things you love because after all, you're here on a Sunday morning when you could be a lot, doing a lot of other things and I get that. Nobody in this room, you know, came here today because you want to be the worst Christian in history, right? Like nobody here is trying to miss it. On some level, I think, you're here because you want to, to, to be a Jesus follower, Right? But we still need to know because none of us think or automatically assume that we're the ones that could love the world. It's always somebody else. It's always them. It's always that place or those group of people, but it's never here. That is, that is the definition of insidious. When it's never here, it's always out there somewhere. All right, we're going to name a few of these things. Some of you might walk out in the middle of it. I said last week that people are people, that meaning there are similarities across time and cultures in terms of how people's behavior is, how society is a function. There's nothing new under the sun. There's just different ways that it might look, but it's all the same stuff. And that's a true thing, but there are always within each culture challenges that are specific to them. Uh, there are things that are unique about certain cultures and the way those cultures are behaving and how that affects those who are trying to live counterculturally, right? Because if you want to live counterculturally, you have to know, well, what is the culture doing, though? Otherwise, you're not aware if you're living counterculturally. And Jesus preached a countercultural gospel. Most everything he said and did was the complete opposite of what the culture was doing. So here's a truth that we're going to finish in this next hour or two. 
It's, this is a statement that, again, I wish I had more time to unpack this morning. If you want to know more about why I think this, whatever, feel free to email Jordan and he can talk to you about it. So he's on vacation, so at least wait a few days. But So here's a statement, okay, that I want to frame things with that maybe you've not heard before, but here's this reality, right? We are a people of the empire. Not in the Star Wars sense, all you Star Wars people out there, right? But kind of. Right? We are a people of the empire. The United States is, is an empire. If you study history, like we talked about last week, you will know that throughout the history of time, there have always been great civilizations, great empires that have risen up. They have at times conquered all the known world. They've occupied, I mean, the, the Roman Empire, if you study that, just absolutely nuts. And Alexander the Great and all these things, right? If you understand like all this, there's always been empires. And with empire, regardless of time, regardless of place, regardless of culture, there are always markers of empire. There are markers of how empires, when they come to power, behave. There are things then that happen when a Jesus follower tries to exist within that empire. There are things that are ambient, that are in the air, that radiate into us, that we inhale without even knowing it on a daily basis, that we've just kind of taken for granted as that's okay, but we don't realize that's actually the empire, that's actually the culture, that's actually the polar opposite of Jesus, and it's infiltrated its way into us so subtly that we don't even, we're not even able to identify it anymore. We're sick and we don't know it. Anytime there's an empire since the dawn of, of Christianity in the church 2,000 years ago, anytime there's been an empire, the church and Jesus has been co-opted by it. And when it's been co-opted, and we're going to talk about this here in a couple more minutes, uh, it doesn't work out so well for the church. So let's talk about a few things that are markers of empire and things that, if I'm talking about do not love the world, things we need to be aware of, dangerous, things that are insidious. We'll go through these. I'll try to be brief. First one is excess. Excess. Excess, you can define it as taking more than you need as a way of life. Taking more than, you know, there's times where there's times for feasting, right? There's times for festivals and celebration and all that kind of stuff where you're like, it's okay tonight to eat the second slice of cake. And obviously you understand I'm not talking necessarily literally about cake, but like, it's okay to do that, to have excess. But excess is taking more than you need as a way of life. It's gluttony. It's overindulgence. And that springs from a place that's very deep and unhealthy, you've ever seen, uh, I don't know which one it is, one of the Hunger Games movies, maybe you've read the book, but there's a scene uh, where they go to a party, and there's just, you know, of course, all these people are starving, right, out, they don't have any, any food at all, they go to this party, and you talk about, like, it's just the spread of all spreads, like, the food is ridiculous, and they eat, and then this one girl, like, offers this other person, I can't remember all of it, they offer them, like, a pill, they're like, well, take this, and they're like, why? They're like, well, so you can throw up and then you can eat more, right? Because you can only, your stomach can only handle so much and you got all this enjoyment, but now you're full and that's not okay because look at all the stuff you need to, I mean, you got to get after it. So here, take this pill, throw up, then eat more. It's a great satire, right? 
excess, taking more than you need as a way of life. Now, there are reasons why we do this. Again, I can't get into all that today, but think about this. Could this be you? Has the, has the world worked its way into you that you take more than you need? And I'm not talking about that you have to live a Spartan-like existence, right? Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, can you ask the question at least, am I taking more than I need as a way of life? There's so many layers of that. Next one is in line with excess, and it's decadence. Decadence by definition. And these are marks of empires, by the way, throughout history. Decadence is moral or cultural decline as characterized by excessive indulgence in pleasure or luxury. And again, this is hard because none of you are going to instantly think, I excessively indulge in pleasure or luxury. There's always someone else that does more, that takes more vacations. I'm not saying vacations are bad, but they do more. They buy more expensive cars. They buy a bigger house. They do this, whatever. There's always somebody else, so it's never us, and that's dangerous. Decadence is a moral or cultural decline as characterized by excessive indulgence and pleasure or luxury. We live in a culture that is like that, and I worry that it's infiltrated the church in many ways. There's actually a, a book, I believe, it's called The Four Horsemen, and it's based on uh, the history of empire and how every great empire, as you know, is also fallen. And before they fell, there were these significant signs that they were going to fall, and there were markers. One of them was decadence, and what's so interesting is throughout history, one of the markers of decadence, this is, I'm not making this up, throughout empire for thousands and thousands of years, is when before they would crumble, before when they got to their height, they always had... I'm making this up, celebrity chefs. Food and cooking and food preparation and food type of things became this massive thing. Celebrity chefs, we're talking about thousands of years ago. This isn't nothing new under the sun. All you Food Network junkies, all you guys that watch diners, drive-ins, and dives, when I'm, man, it always looks so good. It's like... I'm just saying. All right. The next. Materialism. Now, I know I'm kind of, these, maybe there's a lot of overlap. Excess, decadence, I get that. Materialism. But this is one John directly addresses when he says the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. If you read and study what he's actually talking about, what he's saying is this. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes are a desire for material things that you want to possess, that you want to own, that you see and you're like, I've got to have that, right? I was just telling Matt, Biondi out in the lobby before church today, watching the NBA playoffs, there's this commercial that's been repeating itself that has, it's a farm or a state farm commercial and it has Chris Paul who plays point guard for the Suns in it and he's wearing this uh, Jordan hoodie, this Michael Jordan hoodie that is like a retro style, and I remember it from my childhood, the style, and I absolutely love this thing. And I'm like, I've got to figure out a way to get that, right? It's the lust of the flesh. That's the lust of the eyes. I mean, and again, if I get it, if one of you want to get it for me, it's not necessarily a bad thing, because that would be helping you give more away. But, but and I'm, we can laugh, because I understand it's not, it may seem like not that big of a deal, and it probably isn't, but it's good to ask the question, like, what's my motivation? Like, but it's so it's the things that you want that you don't possess, but you want to possess them for all kinds of different reasons. And then the pride of life is also materialism because the pride of life is 
So is what you do have, what you currently possess. So you want more, you think you need more, you gotta get more, but then also you have this pride with what you already have, so you're always excited about whatever it might be, and it's material stuff, it's stuff that is passing away that, you know, moth and rust are gonna destroy, that thieves can break in and steal, but you're loving that stuff, you're clinging to that stuff, and not only are you clinging to what you do have and taking pride in it and, and giving yourself value because of it, but you actually are wanting more of it. So the excess and the decadence, we're flying through these. The next one, just got a couple more. Busyness. You're like, how is this love in the world? Tell you how. Busyness is the new status symbol in Western culture. It is the new status symbol in Western culture. A friend of mine the other day, was telling me a story about how she uh, encountered a colleague and she asked this colleague like, hey, how's things been going? And, oh, I'm just, I'm so busy. Just so busy. You've got so much going on, this and this. And it was definitely not like, a, oh, I'm sad I'm busy. It was like, I'm, I'm wanting to tell you how amazing I am by saying how busy I am. And my friend said it would just like everything she had not to just be like, <laughs> like, ah, oh, what are you talking about? But this is the new status symbol of Western culture. How, how many times do you ask somebody, how are you doing? And their answer is, I'm just really busy. Is that, is that an actual thing of how you're doing? That seems like a weird, a weird way to answer that question. But the reason we're saying that is because we get value in life from this. If we're busy, we feel like meaningful. If we're busy, we feel like we matter. If we're busy, we feel like the world sort of revolves around us, even though we may not be able to see that or admit it or say it. If we're busy, it means we're important. If we're not, then we, suddenly we're struggling. Not, not good. Not good at all. The church I used to pastor, people would say, hey, I'd like to get lunch with you. I'm sure you're really busy. So, and I'm like, no, I'm not. No, we can do it tomorrow the next day. And the reason why is because I intentionally built in significant portions of margin for things like that. And because I wanted to counter, be countercultural in that. doesn't mean that we're not busy at times, but busyness is not uh, a badge that I, of honor that we want to wear, right? Busyness is a, is, a, is a thing that can happen, but it shouldn't be a state of mind or something you own and identify with as like, this is who I am. I'm busy. Hope that makes sense. The next one is consumerism. These are, again, markers of, of empire. We are people of empire. These are things that are insidious. These are things that we are not to love. These are things, things that we have to be aware of, the dangers of, to check ourselves. Consumerism takes on so many different forms. Where it's most dangerous, where it's most insidious, I think, is when it crosses the line from, you know, out there in the parking lot to inside these walls. I don't mean that literally, but what I mean is that we're so used to being consumers of products and of things that we suddenly become consumers of religious goods and services. We start to treat the church like it's Burger King. I just want it my way. Like, I want to have it my way. And so when it's not our way, it's easy for us to go to a different fast food restaurant down the street. And when they don't get our order right that one time, you know, we just grumble and complain and act like it's the biggest offense in history, right? And all those types of things. But this consumerism 
What, it, what, it, what can it do for me? Can I have it my way? I didn't, I didn't get much out of that sermon. So I'm gonna go down the street. I, don't, I didn't, didn't really get much out of, and it's all this idea of consumerism, right? And it destroys the church. It destroys the church because if you come to, to New Point Church and you come in as a consumer and you go, man, you know, I really like the VBS that they did. It's like, man, that was an amazing VBS. Like, you bring your kid. It's amazing VBS, you know? Josh hit Jeff across the chest with a fish. I mean, it was cool. I get all that, right? But then you find out that, like, oh, oh, there's a, another VBS, you know, and they got more bells and whistles, and their guy hit their guy with a bigger fish, you know, than that, and they got this, that, and the other. And well, then you're going to go to there because it's a better product. You're looking at it as a product instead of a family, Consumerism. Again, I, I could preach messages in all these and, and probably have and maybe will in the future, but the next one is narcissism. Of course, most of us are like, this isn't me. The great irony, right? <sighs> I'm not, I mean, I'm not narcissistic. <laughs> like, that's not me. Narcissism is, in our culture, is two things, man. Two things. There's more than these two, but these are two big ones, I think, is number one, the need to curate your image and also the need to have an opinion on everything. Basically, everything that social media is and does. You know, there's a direct correlation, direct correlation. Studies coming out about this now between the amount of social media usage and the amount of mental health issues. The more you use social media, the more health issues you're going to have, mental health issues you're going to have. The more anxiety, the more depression, all kinds of things. Because it's an inc incredibly, naturally narcissistic thing. You start to view your life as like you're experiencing something and you actually can't even enjoy and be present in the experience because the whole time what you're thinking about is, like, oh, I need to put this on Instagram. I need to get the right picture of this. I need to make sure everybody saw, saw that I was here to bring two things together. I need to take pictures of this food and post it, which I'll, I used to do that back in the day, right? But it's a need to curate your image and then to have an opinion on everything. You gotta weigh in on everything. You always gotta, it's just, it's, it's narcissistic. It's an inflated sense of self. But it seems, it's so normal, isn't it? I mean, what is it, like one billion people in the world have Facebook? Right, so it's normalized. It's part of our culture. We don't think anything of it. We don't think, why am I posting this picture of my food? Why am I posting this place that I was at? Why am I doing this? Like, what are my reasons? Why do I feel the need to comment and to go back and forth with this person on this issue? Like, what's that gonna accomplish? We know it doesn't accomplish anything, but yet we're compelled to do it. Why is that? What is it? That narcissism works its way into our culture. Self-obsession, and of course, all these things, again, they have so much overlap. You can't already tell. Is this still on? Okay. Last one. <laughs> Nationalism. This is multiple sermons, so, and I have five minutes. Nationalism is the exaltation of the flag above the cross. Again, no one's guilty of this. 
It's when you have more opinions, more passion, more interest in Republican and Democrat than you do in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's when you're more worked up over who's elected into office than you are about all of the other things going on in the world that God cares, I think, a lot more about, if I can be so bold. There was a, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention recently resigned because he felt that the denomination had become way too hyper-focused on Republican politics. I'm, not, I'm just giving you what he said. I'm not saying I'm in agreement or anything necessarily. But he, when in his resignation speech, he said this. He said, when the church climbs into bed with politics, the church gets pregnant. And the offspring looks nothing like Jesus. I didn't say it. Just repeating it. This is something that it's so, so dark and so insidious. We think the kingdom of God is the same as having a certain person in office. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The very thing that they actually wanted to do, the reason they didn't believe he was the Messiah is because he wouldn't take the throne. Okay. You're like, well, that's all depressing. What's the remedy? If we're diagnosing the illness, if we're diagnosing the disease, if we're diagnosing all these things, what's the remedy? How do we fix that? If you can honestly take a look at yourself and go, man, I'm, oh, yeah, all of those. <laughs> what do you do? Well, now you know, okay? Now you know some of these things. And as G.I. Joe said when I was growing up, knowing is half the battle, right? If you, do anybody remember that? Random. So, but the other half, I always wonder, what's the other half, G.I. Joe? Right? other half is to do something about it, okay? You know, now take action. So three things as we close. First one, always start with this. If you've heard me <laughs> preach any message similar to this over the last three and a half years, this is always my first to-do thing, kind of an important one, is pray. Is pray. Here's a specific thing you can pray. If you want to take a picture of this, or if you want to go back and screenshot it later, whatever. Here's a prayer. You can just ask, you can pray, say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, <laughs> Father, expose the areas of my life where I've given myself over to the love of the world and empower me through your Holy Spirit to redirect that love to you. Expose the areas of my life where I've given myself over to the love of the world and empower me through your Holy Spirit to redirect that love to you. It's like Matt said in his communion meditation, we're not capable of love without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So if I tell you all this stuff and I just go, okay, now, go fix it. It's not going to happen. The try harder thing isn't going to happen here. It's asking and submission. Expose those areas, which is a dangerous prayer, but I would encourage you to pray it. Expose the areas of my life where I've given myself over. And don't just expose them then. Don't just leave me empty and that's not because that's not what God wants to do, but then fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can redirect that love to you. Pray. Number two, ask. Just ask the question, okay? Is it possible that I love the world? 
Is it possible that I love the world? Is my life, when I look at it from a bird's eye view, and you can maybe ask others, which I'll get to in a second, but is my life marked by pursuit of his kingdom? Is my life, my, my life manifesting the fruit of the spirit? Or is it marked by chasing the winds and the tides of culture? Am I living a countercultural lifestyle? Am I different than those who don't know Jesus? And I'm not talking about an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs or a political identity or any of that type of stuff. I'm talking about is my life manifest different in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Is it possible that I love the world? Is my life marked by these things or is it not? This is deep level stuff. The last one is a lot of hashes there is read, watch, listen, and discuss. If you pray that prayer and you, you can ask that question honestly and answer it honestly, then you got to dive in to things that are gonna start to help you resources. Listen is listening to your friends, right? listening to those around you who you might trust or listening to their thoughts on your life, which is gonna be a hard thing to do. Discussing with them areas where you might be loving the world. Hopefully they're willing to have some reciprocity. It's watching and reading things that are not like, you know, the most popular things. The bestsellers, don't read those. No offense, but just don't like read stuff that's more countercultural, that's more subversive, that's actually more along the lines of the way that Jesus lived. And how do you do that? You can ask me. I've got a million resources, a million books you can read, shows, documentaries, all kinds of stuff you can watch, sermon series you can listen to for weeks. Ask me, discuss with each other. Shoot me an email. We can sit down, we can talk about it more. This isn't just like, here you go. And now good luck. It's here you go. Pray. Let the Holy Spirit empower you. Ask yourself and let's talk about it. Pray. Ask. And this last one too. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to love the world. I don't want to. I've been a pastor for a long time. I'm immersed and Christian stuff all the time. And it's still difficult in the midst of all that to not be taken captive by certain things. You have to be on your guard. So I'm confessing to you that I don't have all this down, that I'm working through this, that I have to ask myself these questions. In what ways have I been complicit with the world and culture? In what way am I a person who's given myself over to loving the things of the world more than loving God. And I just want us to be a people that love God and shun the world. Like in the, you know what I'm saying? Not like people, but shun the spiritual system that's set up to oppose us. Let me pray. Jesus, we wanna be a church that loves you. In order to love you, we cannot be lovers of the world. You tell us that no one can serve two masters. We don't wanna serve two masters. We wanna serve you. Continue through your Holy Spirit to show us how to do this. 
Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us resources. Have breakthroughs through whatever it looks like. We don't want to be a people of the world. We want to be an outpost. We want to be a place where your presence shows up in power. The people know we're different, not just because we believe a certain set of things, but because we look different. And it's not a looking different from a place of pride, but because you model it for us. We want to look like you look. Holy Spirit, shape us and conform us into that image. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy Spirit, shape us and conform us into that image. In Jesus' name, amen.